Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Alan. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. LinkedIn presents... all of us. It's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Oded Netzer. He's the Vice Dean of Research and the Arthur J. Sandberg Professor of Business at Columbia Business School. He's also an Amazon scholar and affiliate with the Columbia University Data Science Institute. He's a world-renowned expert in data-driven decision-making, and his award-winning research is broadly read and highly cited. He's published dozens of papers in many of the leading marketing and management science journals, but today we're going to talk about a recent book that he co-authored with two other authors, Christopher Frank and Paul McGone, called Decisions Over Decimals. And we'll talk about what should we be thinking about in terms of decision making and something he calls quantitative intuition and how quantitative intuition actually is something that is highly relevant to new AI tools like chat GPT and new careers that are being generated called prompt engineer. So much more to come. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Oded Netzer. Oded, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for hosting me. I'm excited to get to talk about the book and, and what you're doing as a, as a business school professor and much more. But before we go there, I hear that you are the son of a Holocaust survivor. And I have 
as far as I know, never talked to somebody that's come from that lineage before. So tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at my first generation college, because my father was a Holocaust survivor, was born in Germany, and then were a sequence of events uh, somehow, and some of them luck, some of them more um, good thinking of his family eventually uh, survived, <laughs> um, but immigrated eventually to Israel and didn't go to college because of that first generation college. And I took the whole first generation college very seriously and pretty much stayed in college for the rest of my life. Uh, but actually before college, my first job was not at all college related. I, I lived for a year in a kibbutz uh, and I was actually uh, working in the chicken house in the kibbutz. Uh, interestingly, the reason why I decided to escape from the chicken house was because the, the person I worked with started at some point to more look like and behave like the chickens. So I said, I, I better escape from this. I went to college and again, eventually uh, stayed in that in a college environment pretty much uh, since. I love that. So I don't know much. What is a chicken house? Like, I'm not sure I completely understand what it is. Yeah, it's uh, this particular chicken house was chicken house that was more for fertility eggs. Uh, so eggs that eventually leads to more chickens. Yeah. So we would pick the eggs five times a day. We'd go and pick the eggs from from the chickens. Um, yeah, not not a job that I would generally recommend <laughs> doing for a lifetime, if you ask me. But uh, <laughs> And then uh, basically you're curating those eggs for, for future production somehow. Correct. Okay, yes. gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, I also, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that's worked in the chicken house either. So that's awesome. Uh, two first. Uh, yeah, we, st we start with two first. That's a good start. I like it. I like it. Well, I know you are the vice dean of research and the Arthur J. Sandberg professor of business at Columbia Business School. It sounds like you you may have not known that you wanted to be a professor, but how did you end up you know, becoming a business school professor and a researcher? Yeah, so, well, I knew I didn't want to continue working in the chicken house. That's I knew for sure. <laughs> but when it came to, to being a professor, in fact, I would say that if you look at the at a typical university and a typical floor of professors, almost none of us knew when we were in college that we want to be the person on the other side of the podium, right? I mean, unlikely that you are in college. Really, what you want to do is, I really want to be the person on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. For me, actually, the process went through working in consulting. So after college, I started working in consulting, worked for a company that did marketing research slash economic type consulting. Really enjoyed it. I actually liked the job and liked the, the, the problems that we were trying to solve were really interesting problems. But what I realized is that when I was looking at the company, as I was particularly looking at the, the hierarchy in the, in the company and towards the leadership of the company, it was a fairly small consulting company. I realized that I don't think I would, I would necessarily want to be the, the manager of the company because the manager did less consulting and more management of people and getting clients and bringing, bringing jobs. Right. And I realized I actually enjoy the consulting, but I actually, and the, the research aspect of things, but I'm the type of person that would want to climb the ladder wherever they are. And it wasn't clear to me that I want to climb that ladder. Uh, realizing being in a place where I can do research and focus on, on solving problems and yet climbing ladders uh, was much more in, in academia. I also very much enjoy teaching and that's how I eventually ended up in academia, but I can tell that it's something that I always knew, or even as much as three years before I started my PhD or the path towards academia, I knew that I want to do that. Again, I think it's pretty rare that undergrads know that they want to be professors, though it does happen once in a while. Gotcha. Yeah. And I know professors a lot of times consult as well. Are you consulting as well to companies? 
Yes, definitely. Uh, I actually, I split my time between Colombia and Amazon. I'm uh, what is mm. called an Amazon scholar. These academics that spend some time at Amazon, uh, working with Amazon on, on their problems. And so I, I consult for Amazon or, or even more than consult. I'm, I'm spending one day a week at Amazon. Mm. And apart from that, uh, a few companies that I also uh, consult for them. It's It really helps us, particularly professors in the business school that, that are interacting with MBAs and business uh, students to stay on top of not just just the theory, but also the practices. It's it's really I find it very rewarding to combine the the theory and the practice. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Well, I want to say congratulations. I know you just published or, or recently published decisions over decimals. I want to know a little bit more about the book, like why why this book, and and maybe why now. Yeah, so so decisions over decimal. Thank you. Uh, we're very excited about the book. Uh, Publishes book together with a couple of partners in crime. Chris Frank um, at American Express and Paul Mignon at Google. So two actually practitioners, though they're also adjunct professors at, at Columbia. And we've been teaching for a good seven years. We've been teaching the content of, of decisions over decimals, a framework and set of tools that we call quantitative intuition. I'll explain a little bit more in, in a few minutes. But uh, through our collective experience, Chris and Paul in the front line of business in American Express and Google previously, Deloitte, Microsoft, myself, again at Amazon and, and consulting, but also at this point teaching thousands of executives and executives-to-be, we've noticed two myths, if you will. Uh, the first myth is that people believe that they shouldn't be or afraid of approaching data because they believe that uh, data and, and analyzing data and looking at data is for those who are top of the class in math, those were the math with or the Excel with or um, <laughs> programmers and so on. And that's a myth. Uh, there are skills needed to make decisions with data, but being top of a class in math is not one of them. In fact, I often say that there are good news and bad news about the topic. They are start with the bad news. Making decisions with data is not a choice. It's reality. We all need to, to make decisions with data. The good news is you don't need to be top of a class in math. <laughs> the, the second myth is uh, what we call the certainty myth. And, and that relates maybe to your question of why now. With the big data, you know, there was the whole buzz around big data in the kind of 2015, yeah. 16, and so on. They, you know, we all have tons of data to make decisions with. And that led to something that, that we call the certainty myth, to believe that finally we'll get to the nirvana of decision-making. We'll be able to make these confident, certain decisions, right? Mm. And now a few years into availability of data, we realize that we still need to make decisions with uncertainty. We still, data doesn't reveal all uncertainties. We're still responsible for the decisions we are making. And that raises the question of how do we make good decision, confident decision, best decisions with limited data? Because again, as, as much as we have a lot of data, it's always limited when it comes to any particular decision. And what is the best way to combine the data together with your intuition and judgment. And in fact, the, the subtitle of the book, Decisions Over Decimal, is striking the balance between intuition and information, or again, this framework that we call quantitative intuition, leading with the decisions as opposed to leading with the decimals, leading with the, with the, with the data itself. I love it. So tell me a little bit more about the quantitative intuition. How do I think about combining those two components? Yeah, so, so, you know, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? Quantitative intuition. Yeah. I mean, there are left side, right side brain people. There are people who are really intuitive and people who are really nerds uh, like me and, and like to look at data. But 
we truly believe, and, and we talk about it quite a bit in the book, that, that these are not opposites. This is, this is not an oxymoron, quantitative and intuition. And in fact, it's, it's the right way to go to try and combine quantitative skills together with uh, judgment and intuition. And specifically, we talk about three pillars that fall under quantitative intuition, three pillars, each one of them with a whole set of skills that we are um, talking about. The first one has to do with something we call precision questioning, the ability to ask precise questions to define the problem before you jump into the data, to make sure that you fully understand what is the problem you're solving for and what are the possible decisions to be made. Even before you start, what are the possible decisions you're likely to make? Because there is no point in collecting data for decisions that you will never make. Right. And in fact, we believe that the smartest person in the room is not the one that that has the answers to every question, the one that raises their hand, pick me, pick me, I know the answer. <laughs> it is really the, the person that asks really good questions, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how often we're impressed by, by the person that asks really good questions. Wow, this was a really, really good question. In fact, if you ask me, I think we are doing interviews, job interviews, all wrong. I think that in job interviews, we are, we are asking questions and we expect the, the interviewee to provide the answers, right? Mm-hmm. If you buy my argument that asking good questions is a skill, then we should be interviewing our employees for being able to ask good questions. And I don't mean <laughs> the question of, tell me about the culture in the company. That's, that's, right. that's an easy question. <laughs> right. I mean questions like, here is a scenario, consulting companies sometimes do it, right? right? And see what questions you ask me about that scenario. Are you asking really the questions that should be asked? So we spent quite a bit of time talking about how do we hone in on the right questions with a method that we call I week, I wish, I knew. A method uh, uh, that helps you ask yourself when you're faced with a data journey, with an exploration, to stop for a second and ask yourself, what is it that I wish I knew in order to solve this problem? Mm. And we found that even that very simplistic, almost deceptively simple, four, four words or an acronym of, of four letters, IWEEK, already pushes further the discussion of honing in and collecting only the data that you really need to, in order to, to address the problem. And again, we talk about several other techniques to, to make sure you ask the right question. The second pillar, we call it contextual analysis, where contextual analysis relates to putting the data in context. Data without context is, is dangerous. And one of the reasons that we believe that people with, with very little quantitative skills can be really good data interrogators is because these people often have really good context. These are people who know the business, you know, leaders in the business, know the, the environment. And the way they interrogate data is very different from the way a statistician interrogates data. A statistician may interrogate the data from saying, oh, why did you use this three-letter acronym and not another three-letter acronym, the p-values, whatever, the, the significance level. The way a leader should interrogate data, which I believe is the more important way of interrogating data, is to look at the result and say, I don't know what you've done wrong, but this number is absolutely wrong. And I can tell you that because I know enough about the business and seen it enough times to tell you that this number is wrong. And that type of knowledge, that type of context is unlikely to sit within a data science team. It's much more likely to sit within a leadership team. So leaders should feel confident at interrogating data, and particularly from from that perspective. And specifically, you want to put data in context with respect to what does it mean in an absolute level? Does it really matter, this number? Right. How does it compare to history, to historical data? And how does this compare to comparables or to competitors, right? I mean, how often do we see high fives in the office, our stock is up 3%, 
And then someone asks, how much did the, did the S&P go up today? And someone says 4%, right? <laughs> right. Suddenly they, uh, their celebration looks a little bit different, right? <laughs> and the last pillar, the last a very important pillar is a synthesis, synthesizing the information into action, moving from what, what's in the data, to so what, what does it mean? And now what? What are we going to do about it? Mm. Moving from the so what to the what to the now what, we spend way too much time on the what. And in the book, we have this character, this persona. We call them the Seymours, the Seymours of the organization. <laughs> the Seymours of the organization are people who, in every meeting, have only one comment. Can I see more data? <laughs> I mean, we can postpone any decision indefinitely by asking to see more and more and more data, right? Mm -hmm. And what we call for is, yes, interrogate the data. That's step number two. But then at some point you have to move to, so what? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And now what? What are we going to do about it? And synthesis are exactly these two steps. And these two steps, by the way, require not just analyzing the data, but pouring in judgment. And that's often uncomfortable because judgment is uncertainty. And definitely now what means decision. Decisions mean, often means change. Again, uncomfortable. These are the things you, need, you start to feel comfortable with. How do I move from just looking at the data and tell you what's in it? And, you know, I, I generally don't pay you to, to speak back to me what's in the table, but rather to poor judgment and tell me what does it mean? What should we do about it? And, and that's the way we, we, we teach our students. That's the way we Think about developing a good leader, someone right. who's synthesizing information towards insights and eventually eventually actions. Yeah. I mean, I love these three pillars in particular. And as I think about, like, reflect on experiences I've had, it feels like, and maybe it's just the places that I've been, but there's been no lack of interrogating the data. Although I think people maybe hesitate to do that sometimes, and likely because they don't have the great context around the business to begin with. The synthesis is, I used to call it analysis paralysis. Like, I just, I need more data, the Seymours that you talk about, or can we look at it this way? Can we look at it that way? And basically avoiding making a decision or understanding the implications. But then the precision questioning, that seems like a lot of times an overlooked step. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I don't think we, as practitioners, as business people, spend enough time defining and framing what it is that we're trying to make a decision about. I 100% agree, and I would, I would go even stronger than maybe your cautious claim of, <laughs> of you don't know if, if people don't spend enough time. Right. We don't. We don't spend enough time. Yeah. In fact, Albert Einstein had the famous quote where he said, it's not that I'm smart, I just spent more time with the problem. Right? <laughs> um, he was smart as well, but... Uh, right partly realizing that he needs to spend more time with the problem, but he also was much better than most of us in solving the problem. Mm. Uh, but I think there are several reasons for it, right? For not spending enough time with the problem. The first is that spending time with the problems doesn't feel like working. Yeah, right. <laughs> Analyzing data feels like working, right? Oh, we send the analysts uh, the, the to crunch numbers, right? Yeah. Uh, we tend to be jumping very fast into solution mode. We've been almost trained and conditioned to go straight into solution mode. Let's look at the data and, and start finding solutions. Mm. But in a book, we talk about this story of Alice in Wonderland, where Alice walks in the forest, and then she gets to a fork in the forest, and then on the tree is the Cheshire cat. So she asks the cat, she says, which way should I go, right or left? 
And the cat says, well, it depends where you want to go. And Alice says, I don't really care which way to go. And the cat says, well, then it doesn't matter. And Alice says, no, 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 but I want to make sure I get somewhere eventually. And the cat says, well, walk long enough, you will get somewhere. <laughs> and it is so often that we do it with data, right? We say, oh, we have all of this data. There got to be something super interesting in it. Go and analyze it, see if you can find something interesting. Right. So that's like the analyst in, in, in Wonderland, right? <laughs> We don't define the problem. We believe that the data will provide both the questions and the answers. And we believe, okay, I'm going to look in the data and then I'm going to figure out what is the question and then I'm going to also going to figure out what is the answer. It is actually our responsibility to come up with a question. And then hope, hopefully the data can provide some answers, even that is not, not guaranteed. The other reason, so one reason is really that it is, it doesn't feel like working and we are, we, we, we want to jump straight into, into looking at data and into solutions. It's also hard. Thinking about problems is hard. Um, then, then actually going and it, as much as crunching numbers is difficult, thinking about problems is, is even harder. And the third dimension of it is risk. If I define the problem and then I don't find an answer, the responsibility now is on me. If I just say, if I'm Alice in Wonderland, just say, oh, let's look at the data, see if we can find something. If you don't find anything, well, it's the data, it's the analyst, it's not really me. I haven't put a stick <laughs> in the ground saying this is what what we are looking looking at, right? This is what we're looking for. Right. So I think it's the, these dimensions of it doesn't feel like work, it's hard and it's risky to, mm. to define the problem, but it's it truly pays off to do so. It truly pays off to spend time with a problem. And in fact, a problem well thought out is half solved. By the time you really thought carefully about the problem, you mostly have, have solved the problem. So uh, in fact, the, the probably the biggest Part of the book and, and what we spend time on is around this notion of how do we ask good questions? How do we define well the problem? And one of the things we are suggesting is uh, working backwards, working backwards from not even from the problem, but from possible decisions. Mm. Start with what are the possible decisions, not one decision. If there is one decision, meaning if, if you know that you should do X, don't spend anyone's time and money on looking at data, just do it. Or right. you're convinced that you should do X. But assuming that there are at least two branches for the decision, start from that and then spend your effort on these I-weeks. What is it that you wish you knew in order to decide between A or B or A, B, and C? What are the possible possible actions you may, may take? So bring in even not just the problem, but actually the possible actions all the way to the start of the process. I love that analogy. And this may be an a, a odd thing to bring up at this point in time but as we've seen the explosion if you will of people experimenting with uh generative ai i'm more fascinated by the prompts that people are using than what the chat gpt or whatever the ai of du jour is is actually spitting back because i think it's pretty interesting the different ways that we will frame what we want to look for <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I don't know if you found that interesting or not, or if I'm on an island by myself there. But Not at all. Not at all. I yeah. fully agree with you. I am... In fact, there is a whole profession that came about starting in November, right, <laughs> with a with ChatGPT, it created a whole career path called prompt engineers. (laughs) I did not even know that. Okay. Yeah. And and if you think about these prompt engineers, right, and they're, by the way, they are royally paid, uh, the ones who are good at it, at the level of any any other person that would be at that level of of developing these models, Mm. focusing focusing on how do we ask good prompts, right? And Mm. it goes straight back to QI, to quantitative intuition, precision questioning. Yeah. And I think that many, a common mistake that people make when they when they interact with with these type of generative AI tools that they they let go after the first prompt. <laughs> they ask a prompt and then they are okay. He didn't give me the right answer, so I guess this is not a good tool. But <laughs> one of the nice things about these tools relative to previous generations of of the the tools, or relative even to to our interaction with Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant, is that it does react to the the, the repeated queries, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of understand the previous queries and the, and the repeated queries and, and becomes better the more you focused it on what exactly you want. If it gave you the wrong, kind of went the wrong path, realign, tell, right. tell the, the machine, but I'm actually interested in that domain of the response. Can you tell me more about that domain of the response? Because the other one is maybe less relevant to, to what I ask. I think it's a great example of precision questioning. And again, a whole profession that came about, again, called prompt engineers on how do we build and write good prompts that would get us better better results? And in fact, I've seen now even iterative processes where you ask ChatGPT what questions you should ask. <laughs> right. So for example, you would give it your query and you say, but I want to ask a generative AI tool for that. How would you ask it to a generative AI tool? Mm. So again, I think it's it's a great example. By the way, ChatGPT itself and the, the or generative AI for that matter, actually specifically ChatGPT. One of the biggest reasons why it was such a big improvement methodologically over the previous generations that we've seen. And I spent, by the way, the last 15 years, I've spent working on textual analysis and, and language models. Mm. Um, so have been working in the area for a while. And I have to say that the, the, in November, the day I opened ChatGPT, my reaction to it was the world will never be the same. I mean, it's one of these rare moments in technological innovation that I said, look, this is this is very different from everything we've th- we've seen. And again, if you want more of the the typical consumer reaction to it, just compare it to again Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant. It's so much better, right? Right. Yes. Human level type of interaction. Yeah. And the main reason for it has to do with the second pillar of QI, with context. And the reason is that the this GPT three and a half was the underlying language model used for ChatGPT. It takes into account a context of 8,000 tokens. So think about tokens somewhat like words. So 8,000 tokens mm-hmm. is, I think, about around 6,000 words because periods and so on are also tokens. Uh-huh. And so think about like 6,000 words in order to understand the meaning of a particular word. So it, it understands the full context of what we talked about to understand the meaning of a word. And relative to, for example, a GPT-2, which was the previous generation to it, had a context of only 2,000 words 
to understand any particular word. Wow. Okay. And that was a huge leap in operating more similar to the way the human brain works. We are masters, humans, human brain, we don't fully understand how, but the human brain is a master of context, of understanding context. Hmm. You and I are right now talking, and if I say now the word model, right. you immediately know that I don't mean the fashion type. Yes. I need to give you a really, really good clue in the context to tell you that I just moved to talk about the fashion type model, right? Right. <laughs> because of the context, right? right. We are very good at, at understanding these. Yeah. Machines are, are can learn, but they often need much more training data to, to do so. But it is really the, the, the understanding of the context. And machines are not yet as good as humans. I don't know if they'll ever become as good as, as the human brain mm. in, in understanding context. It'll be hard, I think, to get there. I did hear about, and I, I can't for the life of me remember, where this was is a recent publication, I guess, that has figured out how to even improve chat GPT or the, the basis of it, even leapfrog where it is in terms of speed and reduction in computing power based on another another piece of this. I don't think it gets to anything related to making decisions, but there is more coming, I guess, is the is the is <laughs> I would is what I would say. hundred um, percent. I yeah. mean the, the the improvement of these tools was unbelievable since even November. Yeah. What we've seen from both OpenAI but also um, Google and others mm -hmm. is is amazing. And these tools will continue to improve. I mean computers don't have and I don't think we'll ever have the same level of context that that humans have with respect to any particular uh, situation, but with enough training data, they can. They definitely can. It's not that they right. can't get there. It's just that they'll always need more training data that, 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 that what humans need. And I'll give you an example for that. Think about a toddler, like a one-and-a-half-year-old. Mm, yeah. doesn't have the intelligence to speak yet. Mm -hmm. And you show them a picture in a book of, of, a, of a cat, and you tell them, you teach them that this thing does meow. Right. And then you show them, an, and not a picture of it, by the way, illustration of an illustrator in a kid's book. Mm. And then you show them an illustration of a dog and you tell them this, this thing does woof, right? Mm -hmm. And you show them three, four of these in, in different books. And, you know, by about the fourth, fifth times, so you take them to the street and they see a dog or they see a cat. They're going to say a meow and a woof. They can't speak yet. They don't right. have the intelligence to speak, but they already figured out based on four or five observations, what is a dog and what is a cat. Even they've never seen a real one. Now they've seen for the first time a real one. And they'll be good at a 90 plus percent accuracy of recognizing cats from dogs. Right. It took machines 2 million images coded by humans of cats and dogs to get to human level. They now get to human levels. Machines are at human levels of, mm. of getting it. But it took 2 million observations. <laughs> if we understood how a toddler can do it with five observations, of course, we would have taught machines to do the same thing. Right. But, but we don't fully get it. We don't fully understand how the magic that we get the difference between a dog and a cat with only five observations. I, I really love that example because it brings it home in terms of like what we don't know yet. And there's more to figure out. But man, just think about as we make leaps and bounds to actually understand ourselves, we actually might help to understand the machines as well. It's this weird symbiotic thing going on here. Correct. Well, I want to talk, I want to ask you, I feel like we've been talking a lot about data and making decisions. One of the things I know you focus on as well is unstructured data. And I'm curious how most of the time inside a business, I think we think of quantitative structured data, revenue, sales, behaviors that we're capturing in bits and bytes. But how should we think about using unstructured data to help improve our decision making? Yeah. And as I mentioned, I mean, I spent the last 15 years uh, on my, my academic research hat on looking at these 
uh, sources of data. Mm-hmm. And the, the reality is these are the vast, vast majority of the data we have. You know, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 80 and 95% of the data we have doesn't come in numbers. It actually comes in, in words, in videos, in images, in, in audio. There is tremendous opportunity there. And it's only in the last good 10, 10, 15 years that we have tools to analyze these data in a meaningful way. I mean, these data existed all along. I mean, arguably since the Ten Commandments were written on a stone <laughs> uh, in, in, in unstructured data. But the use of it, the ability to analyze it at scale is really only about 15 years old since we, we have the tools to really analyze this data. So mm. the ability was to infer this data in, in a more systematic and scalable way uh, that we can now do. And part of the, the value of it is that numbers tell you the what, but words, for example, dive to much richer set of information into the how and the emotions of of people when they write, for example, mm-hmm. a review and, or, or maybe into why things happen. Right. So there is so much more richness in this data. And, and we've just recently have learned how to fish from that river flow of information uh, that is called unstructured data. We started with text and more recently you start seeing uh, better and better tools also with respect to images and mm. audio and video and so on. But these, these language models that we just talked about before are a great example of this, of mm. how can we make sense out of unstructured data, meaning we have now a machine reading the entire internet right. and summarizes for us everything that they've just read in, in a couple of sentences and in a very human-like type of language. Mm. It's fascinating to me to think about the potential, especially as it relates to unstructured data. And because in marketing many times is about the why to better understand what we should do next, right? Not that just they're buying a lot of, you know, the blue one (laughs) versus the green one. Why is it the blue one? What else is going on that we need to know about to actually build what the next version of that blue thing should be? So it, it, it leads me down that path. And so talking about marketing, what do you feel like are some of either the types of decisions that marketers need to be driving better decisions around, either through data, unstructured or structured, um, or we could also talk about some like, leading practices that you think of. Yeah, let me wear now my marketing professor hat, <laughs> yeah. uh, since this is uh, where a lot of our audience is interested in, but also, I mean, where my passion is, of course. Uh, right. So first, going back, maybe connecting, if you will, marketing with unstructured data. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest opportunities that I see when it comes to unstructured data and marketing has to do with uh, listening to customers. Yeah. If you think about it, we spend billions of dollars in what we call advertising, right? Where we pay attention to the, the font and the celeb and the, color, the background color and everything to do around this ad, right? And billions of dollars in sending messages to consumers, right? Mm-hmm. And then the customer calls us back. They call to the call center for the chat, mm-hmm. they actually want to talk to us. <laughs> and what do we do? We send it offshore and we never listen. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is insane. I mean, we now have the tools to listen to it. Again, we, there is obviously a person who's listening at that point and, and interacting with them, but they, they actually rarely work for the company. They often outsource these call centers. Mm-hmm. And again, often also offshores. And we have now the tools to listen to what they said, listen to whether the customer mentioned the competitor, whether they mentioned the price, whether they mentioned particular features, whether they mentioned 
they're about to leave the company, right? Right. We have so much opportunity to analyze contacts from customers back to us. So I suggest we should fo- we should allocate some of the effort that we put on sending messages to customers to actually listening to what they tell us when they actually do talk to us and make sure that we react in, in the right way. And again, I don't necessarily mean for the call center agents that are doing their job well. It's more, what do we do after that when we listen to these? Can we actually right. do something in, in, in sending now better messages to customers once we listen to what it is right. that they told us? More generally, I mean, when it comes to marketing and, and what marketeers should focus on, this is a trend that is already there. I mean, the, they need to think about it from a financial perspective about mm-hmm. marketing. And when I, when I mean financial is actually, I actually think that a lot of marketeers think about it as a negative thing. You know, we are being pushed to show something that is very difficult, kind of the ROI on marketing. But I actually think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to move from a cost center to a profit center. When marketing can show that it actually is a profit center, and I, th- and I, and I think it is, I, I really think that, that it is just for the difficulty of showing ROI, it has been more treated often as a cost center because we see the cost, but we don't necessarily evaluate the benefit. Mm-hmm. And part of it has to do with thinking through metrics like customer lifetime value and thinking about customers and customer centricity, but not from it necessarily a touchy-feely way, but more from understanding that or the customer is always right, but understanding that customers are, are units of profitability. The right. cash flow to most companies comes from customer paying customers in this form or the other. And once you understand that, you realize that marketing is at the heart of the organization making these transactions happen. Mm. And in order to do that, we need, for example, to think about aspects like how do we retain these customers? How do we make sure that, the, that these customers are profitable? And again, I mean here profitable, by the way, the profit is for the for-profit, but in non-profit that they're engaged and again, right. still retained. We want to keep them with, with the company. So I think companies should, should pay attention to customers as, as assets, as unit of profil- profitability and, and do attempt then to calculate the ROI because it would shift us from thinking about how much marketing costs and how, what is my advertising budget to how much money I'm bringing, right? A call center should not be thought of as an operational cost, but a true opportunity to talk to your customers, right? And, right. and, and impact them in a, in, a, in a positive way, both for them and for, for the, the, the company. Maybe another, another aspect that I think marketeers should be paying attention to, um, and particularly with, with, with Gen Z, I think that the uh, marketeers are being pushed there by Gen Z, and I think it's a good push, to think, Think carefully about opportunity for a win-win, for doing well by doing good. And I think there are several companies that are doing it, that are, are going in that direction and trying to identify these type of, of, of opportunities. And again, maybe going back to, to quantitative intuition and decisions over decimal, decimals, mm-hmm. interrogate, interrogate yourself, interrogate your customers. In a, I don't mean necessarily interrogate them physically, but but in a way of listening to what it is that they're saying right? and make sure you ask questions. You constantly ask questions. Uh, I mean, I love the examples you gave and I'm, I'm envisioning this, you know, mining reviews of products that are selling well to figure out what your next product is launching that product. And then as customers come through and have the experience of either going through the sales process or using the product itself and listening to them through that process, if you feel that they're, enraged about something you're bouncing that level of rage against your decision criteria and their clv to determine what the next best offer 
or cure for that pain is. A $1,000 future CLV value customer might get a $200 credit. A $10 future value customer may get a, I'm really sorry. <laughs> right. And, and too many companies are, are rushing on, and Wall Street pushes them to do so, right. on the acquisition treadmill. Yes. Keep acquiring more and more and more customers as opposed to focusing on retention, focusing on keeping your good customers. Right. Uh, you will need to run way slower on the acquisition treadmill if you're actually keeping your customers. Right. Just that the, the, the acquisition is very much effectual, meaning I can tell you how many customers I brought. It's very hard for me to tell you how many customers I did not lose. It's more of a counterfactual story. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think we've seen a lot of that recently in the, uh, in the streaming wars coming out of COVID with the, uh, the great adjustment. I right. But yeah, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Any, like, I mean, you've talked about leading practices already, but any other practices that you're like, I've seen this work really well in marketing or I'm excited about the potential of this within marketing? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about, excited, excited about, by the way, uh, incrementality. So more and more mm. companies are thinking carefully about not just correlating, you know, success with the uh, with outcomes, with, with, with what happens before it, but truly trying to understand was there incrementality? Did, did, did action A lead, lead to B? And a lot of companies are uh, pan unintended experimenting with experimentation, mm-hmm. but learning how to to do an A-B test, right? To te- rather than just looking at historical data, let's try this version and the other and see what works. And for many marketing actions, like definitely advertising and price, it's possible. It's maybe a little bit more difficult for product, unless you're a digital product uh, or for placement for, for distribution channels. Mm-hmm. But whenever possible, either conduct experiments or look for measuring the lift, measuring whether your actions truly lead to, to a more, more positive outcome. I think that marketeers should pay attention to generative AI and make sure they are in this game. This, this is not going away. I think it can be extremely valuable for, for the topic of marketing. I'm now looking into advertising and both machine learning, learning at scale, for example, different images and, and taglines of, of display ads and how they work, as well as the generating them using generative AI and comparing it to what mm. marketeers are doing right. and see whether, whether they work better. So I think that's one aspect. The second one is paying attention to, to ethical issues. I think that this, this is another issue that will, will keep coming up, whether it's ethical on a diversity, equity, and inclusion, on, on climate, and so on. Companies need to find their way there and be, and, and find the right values to it. Um, to some extent, AI forces us to write the code right. for what is right and wrong. Things that we have kind of let a manager do before, now we have to put them in writing because we have to write a code. So someone in Silicon Valley or Seattle needs to put the code and s- someone else, hopefully not the same person who wrote the code, needs to write the ethical code that would go into the, the physical code that the company is writing. I love those examples. Well, that's that's awesome. And I mean, it, my mind is spinning on, on, on data and decisions. And I, I can't wait to, uh, to dive deeper in another conversation in the future with you because we're going to run out of time today. So I want to move on to ask you some series of questions I ask everyone that comes on the show. The one that I love asking the most is the first one, which is what experience of your past defines and makes up who you are today? So I spent some time actually traveling. I, uh, I backpacked in Southeast Asia, Asia for six months and then another three months in South America. And I have to tell you that these few months, almost a year of travel, I've learned during this period more than I've learned in any other 
period in my life and I have three degrees. Right. And I learn about myself. I learn about other people, about differences between people, about society. And it was really a, a, an experience that have, have really shaped me to, to see differences, to understand where people are coming from. Explore yourself to very different cultures, for example, from the ones the one that 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 I was raised in. Hmm. Well, what advice would you give your younger self if you're doing this all over again? Enjoy the journey, hmm. and I don't necessarily mean just the travel. Even when you're you're uh, within journeys that are less maybe explorative, uh, it's not just about the outcome. It's not just about the goal. It's about the journey, and make sure you do enjoy the journey, learn from the journey. Uh, learn from the mistakes you make along the journey, but also just, just experience the journey. We are often too much focused on on the goal, which maybe even goes back to a question why we don't spend enough time on the question. Uh, the journey is super important, and we spend anyway most of the time on the journey, mm. uh, as opposed to the outcome. And once you anyway you get to the outcome, you start another journey. Right. But make sure you enjoy the journey. <laughs> I love that. Great advice. Well, this may be a real softball, but what topic do you think marketers need to be learning more about or maybe something you're learning, trying to learn more about yourself? Yeah, I think there have been a couple of things we talked about before, right, but right. Uh, generative AI and, and that world I think is, is, is important. And again, back to how do we create a win-win? How do we create an ethical values? And, and again, the good news is that I think consumers are now asking us to do that, which, right. which will force companies to do it and will create more win-win opportunities. And consumers are the ones that are willing to pay for it, for example. Love it. And are there brands or companies or causes that you personally follow or you think other people should take notice of? Yeah, maybe a few examples, I would say. I mean, on customer centricity, I think that both Amazon and Google are great examples. Mm -hmm. Um, Companies that truly put the customer at the center, to give you an example, I mean, Google.com, this is the biggest real estate on the internet. Right. It's an empty page. (laughs) Think about how much temptation has been over the years to populate that page, and Google resisted that temptation. It's a customer wish for this page to be an empty page. So it focuses on what Google is about, a search query, right? Right. And if you think about Amazon, Amazon, despite their size, you would not see Amazon eh, focusing on, on, I don't know, a real estate project just because it makes money. Every business they go into is a business that helps creating a, a better ecosystem around the customer, which I think is is an example of their customer centricity. Um, another another ex- a great example is, uh, it's a really new company. I've been using them now a few times uh, called Kite with a, with a Y. It's a rental company that if you live in, in, in Manhattan, as I do, a very important, we rent, I don't own a car, I live in Manhattan. Mm. They bring the car to you and take the car from you. <laughs> what they did is they thought carefully about what is the biggest friction in car rental. Right. The b- biggest friction is going, waiting in line, not knowing how long it would take. Right. To actually get the car and back. This um, company has totally reduced the friction. They, the, the person comes to you with a, with a car, often, by the way, with a scooter in the, in the trunk, and then they, they use a stu- scooter to go back home <laughs> and, and really resolve the, that friction. So a great example of, of paying attention to customer needs. And finally, maybe two examples of, of more of the win-win or the ethical aspects. Patagonia, I think, is a great mm-hmm. example of 
a company that for years now has been truly committed to sustainability and paying back, if you will. And, and Kind Bars is another example. Uh, I just recently heard a talk. We gave an award to their, their CEO, Daniel Lubitsky. Um, if you want to interview another <laughs> uh, son of Holocaust survivor. And, and this company is, is a company with great values and really um, thinking about healthy eating, even in a topic like, like snacks. Uh, so I really find, find it as a company that is true to its values. I love it. I love those examples. Yeah. Last question for you. What do you think is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? I think it may, maybe ties back to two things I already talked about, but uh, staying behind with respect to Gen Z. Mm. I think that Gen Z is uh, will push companies in in maybe directions that they haven't been familiar with before. Uh, again, doing well by doing good, and I hope that companies are are paying attention and going with with that generation. I also hope that that generation would stay with these values. Um, and again, the second one is missing on AI. I think the mm. companies that will miss on AI will be in trouble. I think there is way too much discussion on is AI dangerous? Uh, how much are we fearing AI? We shouldn't be fearing an AI. We should be fearing from people who know what to do with AI right. uh, versus those who stay behind. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. Well, Odette, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating. Thank you hosting me, Alan. This was a really pleasure talking to you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today. And you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.